Welcome, everybody. Say hello in the chat and let us know where you are coming from. Welcome, welcome. We've got a really exciting guest here tonight. It's been a bit of a day here in, in New Zealand. We've uh, really been thinking about all our people today out there who have been affected by this mandate that's coming into force today on the 15th. So our thoughts have been with all the teachers and the medical professionals and the frontline staff that have been affected. Thank you to all of you who have, have stood up and uh, yeah, lost your job today. I'm really sorry to hear about that. Standing up for the freedoms within our country. Hold the line, that's right. You go already over a thousand of you in the door. Well, thank you everybody. And I'll just quickly do a quick roundup about who we are and what we're about. I'm Alia and I am uh, one of the three co-founders of Voices of Freedom with Claire and Libby. And we are an organization that has been set up in New Zealand to basically oppose the um, measures that have come in, in response to COVID-19 from the government and censorship from the media, things like that. We've got groups set up all over the country. We've got over 70 coordinators now that are running local groups and trying to get people together in local um, regions so that people can create relationships and just have that support network. We've also got our industry groups where people from various different sectors are able to um, get together and coordinate and support one another. Uh, there's lots of other things that we've been doing in terms of uh, an education space with flyers being printed. We're gonna be having another million that are printed, so three million altogether, and we've had billboards all over the country and all sorts of other things that we have got going on and it's it's not showing any sign of slowing down. So thank you to everybody that has helped to make that happen. So I think we'll get started now. We've got uh, 1,300 of you in the house and I'll introduce our guest tonight. I'm really excited about this one because I've been following Dr. Chetty for a few months now since I first heard about him uh, a few months ago when he did a, a really interesting talk on what he's been experiencing. So Dr. Shankara Chetty is a general practitioner with a natural science background in genetics, advanced biology, microbiology, and biochemistry. He has become recognized the world over for his successful management of COVID patients. His broad natural science background affords, afforded him a unique perspective of, of the pandemic, convincing him that something was missing. Despite a wealth of knowledge around hospital presentations, pathology, and investigations, he saw that there was a distinct lack of information on initial presentation, progression, and pathogenesis. Uh, particularly, I've been interested in your eighth-day observations, Dr. Chetty. And um, I think, oh, before we get started, if you would, wouldn't mind um, giving us a little a brief about the uh, not medical advice, that sort of thing. Good morning. Good morning to everyone. I think good, uh, good evening to everyone there in New Zealand, uh, where I think the majority of viewers are. Uh, yes, <clears throat> what we present today, we're providing a, an understanding of a perspective of what's happening with COVID. And it's not meant to be medical advice to be taken without the consultation of your general practitioner. Uh, COVID is a serious illness and it shouldn't be taken lightly. As much as we found ways to treat this and negate mortality and morbidity, I think your GP should be involved in any decisions you make. Thank you. And I forgot to say you're coming in from South Africa. Yes. 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 Whereabouts in South Africa are you based? Uh, I live in a little town called Port Edward. It's a little boutique holiday destination, but I'm surrounded by a lot of settlements. And so I have a very large clientele. 
but we live in what I'd call a rustic rural village. Awesome. Well, thank you and welcome again. And I'm just wondering if we could start off, if you could give us an overview of the clinical um, observations that you've made over the past 18, 20 months of treating over 7,000 patients within your practice, especially the eighth day um, observations that you've, that you've come across. Okay, uh, to put it into a nutshell, uh, I endeavored to examine uh, every patient that came into my practice. Uh, I didn't do telemedicine and things like that. I wanted to understand why people were going into hospital. And in the first wave, we knew that the breathlessness was what was driving this pandemic and causing all the mortality and morbidity. So I wanted to interrogate that a little further. Uh, before the pandemic got to South Africa, there was a lot of fear from my clientele about not being available. But I made sure I encouraged them that I would be available and they must come to me early so that I could understand the illness. <clears throat> Uh, very early on, uh, patients started presenting very early with symptoms. Uh, as soon as they had a sore throat, they came to see me. And I educated every single one of them to uh, present back if symptoms worsened. I wanted to understand from a clinical picture exactly what was going on with this illness and why people were actually ending up in hospital. Uh, from the world around, before uh, the pandemic hit South Africa, we knew that people were deteriorating relatively quickly. We were hearing stories about people collapsing on the streets and things like that. And that didn't sound like a viral illness. It sounded something uh, strange. We, we have a wealth of knowledge, which we can always fall back on. And when we analyze such things, it's not about randomized trials, but more about looking at the unusual cases to bring some understanding. Doctors usually discuss this kind of thing in the lounge at the end of the day. And that's what brought scientific discovery, not randomized trials. So I wanted to understand what was unique about this, uh, this illness itself. And so I asked patients that uh, they come back if symptoms worsened. Uh, very early on, I noticed a trend. I had a subset of patients that came back breathless. Not everyone. I think it was about 20 or 30% at the time. Uh, those patients that came back breathless, strangely enough, presented exactly a week after the onset of their initial symptom. Uh, I went back, I checked my records, I started interrogating patients about the exact day that they started to feel unwell, and I noticed that the breathlessness always started exactly a week after the initial symptom or the initial feeling of being unwell. And that seemed very strange. Uh, as well with these patients that presented back uh, when, in, uh, when interrogated about the progress, the day before they started to feel breathless, they were perfectly fine. They had thought that they had recovered. And of course, that tied in with all the uh, narrations of people that had demised. Uh, it's always narrated that uh, from family members that they thought the individual was getting better and suddenly took a turn for the worse. So it seemed like there was a turn on the eighth day. Something seemed to be changing on that day. Now, uh, with that change, uh, I, I knew from the start, I had to get myself a toolbox of drugs that might work in this. Now, the first seven days of illness seemed to be an ordinary viral flu. There was absolutely nothing unusual about those seven days. Uh, some had sore throats that resolved within a day. Others got co-infections with bacteria, bacteria and needed uh, antibiotics. And I think we all respond to viral infections slightly differently. Some of us are more resilient than others. You hear people saying it always goes into my chest. And so I, uh, I think we knew how to treat that first phase. But on the eighth day, I needed to do something different. Something had changed. And steroids, we knew that this was a steroid responsive illness. 
So uh, that formed a timeline and a point in time where to initiate steroids uh, without being too aggressive, but with also not, not uh, dousing your immune response. So it seemed like people had recovered and something else had started. Now I started with steroids on the first few patients. They showed signs of improvement with recoveries, but I had it at the back of my mind that I was dealing with an allergic process from before the pandemic came. From looking at the presentations around the world and that kind of thing, I had a suspicion that we're dealing with some kind of immune response here on the eighth day. Well, the eighth day came to be once I started to examine these patients. It took two or three days for patients to start to show signs of recovery with the steroid itself. So I decided that uh, I would have to attempt a what I'd call a therapeutic trial of different medications. Uh, the speed to recovery using those different medications will dictate the underlying mechanism. And so by, I think, the fifth patient, I had a lady that was in her 40s that was diabetic and hypertensive who came in on the eighth day, who was perfectly fine the day before, and she had a saturation of 80%, one of the more critically ill patients I'd seen. And so I decided, well, I, I was well aware of the time to recovery with steroids. It took a few days for them to improve. So to that steroid, I added a kidney's dose of promethazine because I was suspicious we're dealing with a hypersensitivity reaction here. And uh, with that kidney's dose of promethazine, I followed up on, well, every one of my patients from the eighth day. Uh, I, they got a phone call every day to ensure good clinical recovery. And amazingly, by the next day, she was perfectly fine. Her saturations were fine. Everything had resolved with a kidney's dose of antihistamine. But I had just given her a single day of treatment. So I, I asked my staff to contact her and remind her that if the breathlessness resurfaces, she needs to come back. I suspected that it would, seeing that we'd just given her a day of antihistamine. And by the following day, the breathlessness did show up. And so she came back and we treated her and she resolved uh, again very quickly. And that drew my attention to this being a hypersensitivity reaction triggered by something on the eighth day. Now, when you look at viruses, viruses tend to have a finite replication cycle. Measles only lasts that long. Chicken pox as well. It has an evolution to it. We can track the illness. And so I decided I needed to track this illness through and to figure out exactly what was triggering this process on the eighth day. Now, uh, the first seven days seemed to be a viral uh, infection. And by the sixth or seventh day, a majority of patients got their appetites back, which is usually a sign of recovery and your immunity kicking in. But everything took a turn on the eighth day with some patients. Now, understanding that it was hypersensitivity, uh, hypersensitivity causes the release of certain chemical mediators, uh, like a bee sting, and uh, you'd have a varied degree of allergy to such an allergen. So some would have very mild uh, symptoms, some moderate, and some very severe bordering on anaphylaxis and would deteriorate very rapidly. Now, when you treat patients on the eighth day, you can't wait to see how severe they actually are. They could deteriorate too quickly. And this is a process, if not caught early, will cascade out of control very quickly, like a bee sting if untreated. So every patient uh, started or was started on aggressive treatment on that eighth day. We looked for quick clinical improvement, and the clinical improvement determined the dosages and the weaning of certain medications. Now, the mediators that get released are fairly well known to almost every doctor on the planet. Uh, when you have an allergic reaction, you have the release of histamine, you have the release of leukotrienes, prostaglandins, and platelet-activating factor. 
Now, those four mediators need to be addressed. So the protocol that I started when I realized that this was a type one hypersensitivity uh, included antihistamines, montelukast for the uh, leukotrienes and aspirin to prevent any clotting issues. I did look at ginkgo biloba. Ginkgo biloba is a supplement that actually is a platelet activating factor antagonist. And so it's the only one that I could find that would work targetedly at platelet activating factor. So I started that kind of regimen. Uh, as well, you've got to stop the process. This is just mopping mediators. And to stop the process, steroids become vitally important. So you've got a tap that's opened and is spilling out these poisonous mediators. And the longer you leave it, the more damage it will do. The dose of steroid is vitally important in such conditions to stop the reaction itself. And that is how this protocol has evolved. Uh, from the eighth day, if the patient worsens, they are having a severe allergic reaction and you got to be aggressive and timeous in catching that reaction and treating it. The dose of steroid would be determined by the severity of the reaction and the severity of the reaction can be gauged by the speed of recovery. So I give a patient a dose of steroid and I expect within four to six hours to see improvement. If not, I repeat that dose until I get improvement. There's been a lot of controversy about the dose of steroid. I think that we need to understand what we're trying to treat so that we use the appropriate medication. Uh, the whole world has been chasing COVID pneumonia. This is not a COVID pneumonia. Pneumonia is a progressive illness and you can see the patient deteriorate day by day until they develop pneumonia and become breathless. I've never had a patient that was perfectly fine and suddenly woke up one day tired and by the evening was breathless with the pneumonia. So this is actually a hypersensitivity allergen induced pulmonary uh, pneumonitis, not a pneumonia. So it's an allergic reaction occurring deep in the lung. It does affect the vascular system and the rest, but it is typically an allergic reaction occurring in the lung. And that's the reason for the speed of evolution. Anaphylaxis can occur very quickly. Now, if you compare these two conditions, uh, COVID pneumonia and pulmonary hypersensitivity pneumonitis, on X-ray and high definition CT with the ground glass appearance that we've been seeing, both are identical. They cannot be told apart by X-ray or CT. So I think we've been misdiagnosing COVID pneumonia as COVID pneumonia, we're dealing with the hypersensitivity pneumonitis. Now in COVID pneumonia, we're dealing with an infection in that condition. And so steroids need to be used with great caution because you're dealing with the virus and you don't want to hamper any immune response. However, with the hypersensitivity pneumonitis and uh, post eight day where it seems like the virus has passed and your immune response has already had sufficient time to curtail that reaction. Now you're trying to stop an allergic process and the dose of steroid is vitally important. You have to use enough steroid to suppress the reaction. So when you tell a doctor to use 50 milligrams of prednisone, which is 10 five milligram tablets, they feel that that is the maximum. I've had to use 100 milligrams, sometimes three times a day to get a handle on the reaction. So you cannot limit the amount of water you'll use to put out a fire. Uh, you'll never get a handle on things. And so you, the quicker and more the quick, uh, quicker the, the speed and uh, aggression with which you start that steroid will determine the length of treatment. 
the slower you initiate treatment, the longer you're going to have that patient on a steroid. Whereas if you're quick and aggressive, once they're controlled, you can start to wean them off. And so I think the perspective took precedent rather than any medical intervention to understand that we're dealing with a biphasic illness that is non-linear. Uh, the first and second phase have no correlation between each other. Uh, the second phase can be mild, moderate, or severe, and I think the distinction of severity should start on the eighth day rather, for, rather than from the first. A majority of patients do not have this reaction and are not at risk of having a hypersensitivity. Uh, all the mortality and morbidity in this uh, pandemic resides in that part of the process. So the second phase is responsible for all the mortality and morbidity. So to put it into context, the virus is like a bee and the sting is the allergic reaction. So we as a planet have been uh, busy counting bees and chasing bees and trying to kill bees, but we haven't addressed the sting. And uh, the patients that have been stung by this are advised to go home and isolate and wait till they uh, deteriorate. Unfortunately, uh, by that time you have multi-system disorder, you've damaged your body in many ways. And of course, presenting to a hospital is a bit late. Uh, that negates the speed and aggression with uh, having to address this. And of course, uh, a majority of doctors in the hospital are unaware that you've been stung with the bee. So the appropriate method of treating it is not available to you then. And so the perspective is vitally important rather than any treatment protocol. Uh, in the second wave, there was a, a, a little bit more that came to the picture. Uh, in the first wave with this modality of treatment, we had no long COVID because you stopped the reaction. And uh, we also had no complications from COVID. I went through about uh, six to 700 patients in the first wave and we had complete recoveries very timeously. And so in the second wave, uh, approaching the second wave, I started to see patients who were suffering with long COVID come to me. And I took the opportunity there to try and understand what was going on. Uh, I'm of the opinion that long COVID is a moderate hypersensitivity reaction that's gone untreated. And if you got stung with a bee and you developed a rash all over your body and you never treated it, it would take months to a year to actually get, a, get, uh, get over that. And that's long COVID for you. So what we're dealing with is mild, moderate and severe allergic reactions triggered on the eighth day in a subset of population that are prone to this, uh, genetically predisposed. Uh, the genetic predisposition was plain to see in the start. You found in families that were infected, uh, father and sons uh, had severe illness and mother and daughters never had anything wrong uh, or the opposite, but it seemed to be affecting males more. So there was a genetic, definite genetic predisposition. I didn't see any of the comorbidities really play a role in it. Uh, I've had diabetic, hypertensive, elderly, obese patients that recovered even after having the reaction uh, uh, quite timeously. And I've had young patients with absolutely no com comorbidities get critically ill. Uh, so the, the predisposition, uh, the biggest risk factor is whether you're allergic or not. So I think a bee doesn't care whether you're hypertensive or diabetic to kill you. All, it, all that's necessary is that you're allergic to its sting. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, in the first wave, with the realization that I'm dealing with hypersensitivity here and a type one kind of hypersensitivity, that posed uh, some questions and brought some bad omens for the second wave. Uh, hypersensitivity, <clears throat> uh, when a person's uh, allergic to something, uh, the first exposure to an allergen never brings a reaction because you don't have the inappropriate antibodies developed yet. Uh, 
But once you're exposed to that allergen, you become sensitized. And so you develop the inappropriate uh, immunoglobulin E antibodies. And so when re-exposed, you react. Now in the first wave, we found that uh, people over 55 were more prone to mortality and morbidity from this illness. And I had seen that uh, the uh, people were, uh, the, the talk was that it was related to comorbidities and age. However, I didn't see that. Uh, the risk seemed to be uh, unrelated to those kind of comorbidities. So I was under the impression that people over 55 were likely to be exposed to something very similar to this coronavirus before in their lives and had developed the necessary IgE to have a response to it when now re-exposed in the first wave. And that's the reason they were having over 55s uh, more affected. However, uh, people below 55 in the first wave, that would be their first bee sting and that would sensitize them. And so I expected that in the second wave, we were gonna see a far younger subset of patients uh, having mortality and morbidity. And that occurred around the globe. Mm. Uh, it was independent of variant. It was independent of comorbidity. In the second wave, we saw younger people die. And unfortunately, if we realized this early on, we could have prevented a lot of those younger deaths. Uh, when I started seeing long COVID, I started to try and fine tune what I was doing. Uh, I had to try and prove that on the eighth day, we were seeing a sudden change. Now, the markers that would uh, lend credence to my theory were either proving the release of histamine uh, on that day, uh, tryptase, which is another marker on that day, or showing immunoglobulin E levels rising. Now, tryptase and immunoglobulin E are a little slow to show up. So there's no point me showing an elevated marker on the 10th day when I'm trying to prove something's occurring on the 8th. Uh, histamine uh, requires the collection of a 24-hour urine sample. And of course, while I'm collecting that sample, I need to defer treatment. And that wasn't an ethical thing to do, especially mm. seeing that this could spiral out of control very quickly. So the proof of this became a little difficult. But however, with long COVID cases, they've been exposed to an allergen for a period of time and had enough time to develop these markers. So when I started getting long COVID cases coming to me for assistance, uh, coming to me for assistance, I started to do immunoglobulin E assays on them. And I found that in every single one of them, it was elevated, which shown that they were having a long-term allergic reaction, a mast cell activation syndrome, uh, which is common in long-term allergy. And I used the same modality to treat them. Someone that came to me with a rash for six months, I'd use the same. I'd put them on a short course of prednisone to suppress it and use the antihistamines and Montelukast and the rest, a little bit of symptomatic treatment. And I had all my long COVID patients show immediate signs of recovery, uh, almost 80% recovered within the first week of treatment. Uh, it was very much the same with the acute illness. So I understood clearly there that uh, we're dealing with a hypersensitivity kind of reaction. Uh, in the second wave, we had the notorious South African variant. Uh, so I looked closely at that. Uh, I needed to understand the differences rather than the similarities and understand what uh, those differences, uh, how they changed the clinical picture I was seeing. And so I could draw some inference as to what the virus was doing. Uh, the South African variant, the mutation that caused the South African variant, only caused a change in the spike protein. Uh, the spike protein had changed by 40 to 60 amino acid base pairs. 
saw a little change in the spike protein. Everything else on that South African variant was identical to the wild type. So the only thing that changed was the spike. Now in the second wave, uh, the clinical, uh, well, we were well aware that we were dealing with a far more contagious variant. Uh, family members were being infected far more quickly than in the first wave. That contagiousness uh, can be attributable to spike protein, uh, greater affinity for your host. Uh, spike protein, after all, is the way the virus attaches to the host. And it had been uh, on my radar for a long while, uh, seeing that spike, uh, we have been told a bat coronavirus infected human beings. So the thing that would make a bat coronavirus jump species would be its spike protein. Mm. And of course, if you're exposed to a new environment, the, new, the newness of the environment would trigger allergic processes in your body because you haven't been exposed to it before. And so I thought that spike protein was what's new on this virus. And it would be the likely culprit to trigger this allergic process on the eighth day. So in the, in the second wave, we found that we had a more contagious variant, which tied into spike protein. We had far more gastrointestinal symptoms, which tied into spike protein again, a propensity for or an affinity for ACE receptors in the gut. And of course, on the eighth day, we had far more allergic, severe allergic reactions. And so it drew my attention to the fact that spike protein was the allergen that was triggering this allergic process. And so in the second wave, we had to use a higher dose of steroid to suppress it. I think the dose of steroid is dictated by the uh, variant because it's spike protein and uh, the spike protein determines the allergenicity of the uh, protein. And so different variants, uh, different severities of allergic reactions, different mortality and morbidity. So the notorious South African variant was simply because of its ability to trigger a far more severe reaction on the eighth day. And if untreated, it would result in all that mortality and morbidity. So spike protein took center stage uh, as the pathogen of COVID illness. So what we're dealing with uh, in this pandemic is not really a viral illness. The virus is not the primary pathogen of COVID illness. The virus gives you a short flu, which is transient. Uh, the primary pathogen of COVID illness is spike protein. Spike protein is causing pathology that is uh, responsible for all the mortality and morbidity that we see. Uh, coronavirus is just a vector that puts the spike protein into your body itself. Uh, in the second wave, one other point I'd like to make, in the second wave with all the gastrointestinal symptoms we've seen, uh, I was under the impression that, that that was an allergic reaction triggered in your gut rather than anything else, like it was triggered in your lungs. And so uh, in the second wave, uh, the presentation on the eighth day changed. People had a re-emergence of the gastrointestinal symptoms. The mm -hmm. diarrhea had come back. The heartburn had come back. And of course, uh, two days later, the breathlessness set in. So I think the target organ had changed a little bit, but the process was the same. The eighth day still remained for worsening of symptoms. And of course, uh, the treatment modality remained pretty much the same. Uh, in gut uh, allergy, uh, you would want to use an antihistamine that works on the gut. So the H2 antihistamines uh, blockers became more important, the cimetidines and ranitidines and formotidines. Uh, all other measure of treating these gut symptoms seem to have failed, but the cimetidine uh, seemed to do the best. And so it, again, therapeutically, uh, therapeutic trial proved that we were dealing with an allergic reaction in the gut itself. Uh, I think that what we need to understand is that 
in, uh, doctors have been doing therapeutic trials for many years. Every time a patient comes to see me with an illness, it's a therapeutic trial. And if she recovers, the therapeutic trial worked. We are all individuals and we're all different. And so every time I medicate someone, I'm hoping that they would get better. Nothing's written in stone. And so it's a therapeutic trial. Speed to recovery always will determine the efficacy of that trial. Now, if I had to compare, speed to recovery has always been my preoccupation because it determines the mechanism that underlies the condition itself. And we can, we can prove our, our theory by speed to recovery. Now, I have a doctor here in South Africa who used the protocol of the World Health Organization and the others that he could find available to him in the first and second wave. Uh, he's an intensivist, but treats patients on an outpatient basis, those that are critically ill. And uh, in the third wave, he came across my work. He was actually asked to look at my work because I was making certain claims. And uh, he contacted me and I educated him about it. Well, he contacted me because he saw the benefit very quickly. And uh, within the first four patients, he realized he was onto something. And so I educated him about the perspective. Uh, remember, we're talking perspective, not protocol. Uh, it's interchangeable with a lot of medications around the world. Mm -hmm. If you understand what you're treating, then it becomes easy to choose from a wide diversity of tools in your hand and how to do this. So he contacted me. I educated him about what I'm doing and how we should look at this illness. Uh, and so it's been three months. And so we decided to have a relook at where we've come. Uh, in the first and second wave, uh, he had a lot of death. He had a staff member demise. He had one of his interns demise in his practice. Uh, so I, uh, in the third wave, he was very interested in uh, looking at the way I was doing things because I hadn't had any debt. And I had promised him that I would try and negate the debt in his practice. Uh, in the third wave, uh, he had been through a thousand patients uh, when we decided to relook at statistics. Uh, in the first and second wave, he had one or two deaths for every 10 patients that he saw. Wow. Uh, in the third wave, he had now gotten through a thousand patients without a death. Uh, simply by changing perspective. But of course, that might be God's hand. And of course, a milder variant at a different time. So speed to recovery, again, would determine how we do this. So uh, I asked him to look at speed to recovery. Uh, we considered a patient with a 70% saturation in the using the different modalities of treatment and how quickly they would actually recover. The hypoxia being the critical marker or the recovery from hypoxia. Mm. And in the first and second wave, he had used remdesivir, uh, tocilizumab, dexamethasone, uh, anticoagulation. And what he found in the first and second wave was that a patient with 70% would take at least three days to improve to 75%. A lot of them moved in the other direction. Uh, some required ventilation and some demised. Mm. Uh, in the third wave, using my modality of treatment, he found that a similar ill patient with a 70% saturation put onto my treatment uh, regimen would have their saturations improve to 85% within four hours. So there was no comparison. Uh, within, a, uh, within a day, they were well into the 90% saturations. And that's the reason I managed to negate the need for oxygen. Uh, there was a timeless improvement in the hypoxia and so there was no need to have that patient put onto oxygen unnecessarily. Uh, he wrote me a humorous uh, little uh, uh, WhatsApp the other day to say, in the first wave, he chased remdesivir and he ran out. Uh, oxygen, sorry. And in the second wave, remdesivir. And in planning for the third wave, 
he bought 100,000 rands worth of oxygen and 100,000 rands worth of remdesivir to make sure he was prepared. And then he met me. And he's got 100,000 rands of both lying in the corner of his practice unused. <laughs> Unfortunately, he had also set up a uh, vaccination clinic in that time. And now he wrote to me saying that his uh, 90 minus 90 degree Pfizer fridge seems to need to be turned off. It's costing him too much in electricity. And he should have listened to me in the first place about going down that road with vaccinations as well. So yeah, the protocol is simple. It's simple for doctors. Uh, it's a simple perspective. Uh, I have a very different view of this compared to people around the world. I think the mortality and morbidity was wholly unnecessary. I think that the public health interventions were absolutely nonsensical. Mm. Uh, the deferment of early treatment is the reason for all the mortality and morbidity, nothing else. And I think by uh, deferring early treatment, we have we have uh, actually deferred the understanding of what truly is going on in this pandemic. This is just, it's, it blows you away. The people in the comments are saying, you know, you're a legend. They're really grateful for, for what you're sharing with us here. And um, <clears throat> here in New Zealand, you know, our doctors in the mainstream are not talking about any of this sort of stuff. Is there any advice that you would have for them other than just to listen to what you've just said for the last half an hour? Uh, I think I think the fear mongering from the start has caused a lot of the problems amongst uh, the general population amongst doctors. Uh, I am a spiritual person that uh, has a lot of faith in God and so I took this risk. Uh, it, it's my work to keep people safe and so I had to take the risk, but uh, after doing so I realized that there was no reason to fear. Yes, I think a lot of doctors around the world have had to watch their patients' demise. And that brings a lot of fear, trepidation. But this is simple. If you could even, if you could just give your patient an antihistamine, promethazine was my choice because it's a first generation antihistamine. And it's one that's been in our emergency medication toolbox for many years. And it has the quickest speed to recovery in that situation. Give a patient one tablet and watch them recover. And it will give you the confidence to do this. Uh, I think the fear is, uh, has, has changed the way we're dealing with this as a medical fraternity. So to the doctors out there, I think, try. Don't be afraid to try. Uh, the modality is relatively simple. All you got to have at the back of your head is that a patient's been stung with the bee. I've had many patients over the years come in with anaphylaxis. I'm a myriad. Of, I mean, many doctors around the world would have had that happen. Yes, it's a scary situation. We keep the patient in our consulting room till we've turned that around and they're showing signs of improvement before we can release them to go home and continue the medication. So that's all we need to do. All we need to do is realize that on the eighth day, we're having a severe hypersensitivity trigger and it needs to be addressed and be quick and aggressive. I've treated hundreds of patients around the globe using telemedicine and I've had the same success with them as well. So I think we need not fear. Uh, as far as the preventative measures go earlier, uh, there's been a lot of confusion early on about the transmission of this virus. We were told that it lives for 10 days on this surface and mm. 20 days on that, and people were sanitizing their supermarketing and the rest. And I thought that was absolutely nonsensical. We got a huge body of knowledge that we've gained over all these years. Why don't we look at that? And so I don't believe very, uh, uh, very easily what I'm told. 
especially when there's an agenda out there. Mm. And so I set up a tent outside my home in my parking lot. Uh, my practice and my home are in the same premises. And so I set up a tent. I knew that ventilation and sunlight were the two most important things to shield me. Uh, I knew that I had to wear a mask and a shield, but keep my hands away from my face. I've never worn full PPE. The mask and my shield was all that I required. In fact, after the first wave, I threw away my shield. It just became too much to do. I had to triage my patients because I made sure that I would be available to those that were not COVID suspects. So I set up a screening station at my front gate. I separated COVID patients from COVID suspects and those that were neither COVID nor suspects were allowed into my practice. So I had three different waiting areas. I had someone to screen and separate those patients out. In fact, in my practice, you know, it's difficult to get people to keep their hands to themselves. And that's the biggest way that this spreads. So I put two double red stripes on my floor and told patients just stay between those stripes. And somehow when you have to walk between stripes, you keep your hands to yourself. And so that kept people understanding that, look, you've got to just keep an eye on yourself. So I think there's little things that we can do to actually uh, educate the public and make them understand what we're going through. Uh, I used a white coat. So whenever I walked into my tent, I put a white coat on. And whenever I walked out, I carefully took it out. That was washed at the end of the day. I isolated myself from my family and the public for four months. Uh, all I did was see patients and go back into isolation. I needed to figure out what was going on. And then I think fate has a way of forcing us to uh, lose our fear. Uh, in that four months, I had no deaths. I had remarkable recoveries. I had patients who presented with 50% saturations recover. Uh, and uh, so, so there was absolutely no reason for me to be afraid. Mm. Uh, I've seen far more severe illnesses that uh, I've had patients demise from. And here I was winning. And one fateful day, I came home and uh, was talking to my son in the garden, socially distanced with a mask on. And I stepped back and tripped over my dog and cracked my ankle and drove back to my flat. But the next day it had swollen terribly. And so I managed to get back to my practice and I was busy getting my gardener to set up the room at the back of my home so that I could stay at home, I couldn't drive anymore. And then my son came to me and he said, dad, you know how to fix this illness. What are you, what are, why do you want to stay in the back room? And so I moved back home and I've been at home ever since. I'm still seeing COVID on a daily basis. Uh, the fear is gone and I'm not sure whether I've had it but if I have, I'm sure I have natural immunity to it. So there's mm. no reason for me to check. I never once checked to see whether I've developed immunity from the flu itself. And yes. if we can, by early treatment, turn this into an endemic flu, then I don't see why we're all afraid of it. Mm. That, that's, that's amazing. Thank you so much for that story. That's really inspiring. I'm wondering if we can switch track now and talk a little bit more about the spike protein and how you, you view that. And amongst this all, it's pathogenesis, um, the long-term exposure to the spike, what are the risks of that sort of thing? And then we'll move into the vaccine after that. Okay. Look, uh, I don't want to stir controversy and get involved in conspiracy, but there's certain logic and certain facts that dictate that a picture fits. It's how I discovered hypersensitivity. It was the only pathology that fitted on the eighth day. And so I think uh, good sense should prevail, uh, looking at all the facts around us. Now, what I've discovered <clears throat> is that spike protein is an allergen. Uh, it is the cause of all the mortality and morbidity. 
So the focus for, from my perspective has always been on spike protein. And so I've been trying to push research to say, stop looking at the virus, start understanding spike protein. That is the, 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 the pathogen here. And the understanding of spike protein will bring better understanding of the illness, its progression. Uh, it will also allow us to fine tune the way we treat this. Yes, we've managed to curb the mortality and morbidity, but we can do more to curb the suffering. And so uh, I, I pushed researchers that were in contact with me to keep looking at the spike protein and understand what's going on here. Now, just to give you an understanding of why I needed to research spike protein more closely, uh, let's take penicillin. Uh, penicillin is an antibiotic. Now, its antibiotic potential is what we'd call its biologic effect. That's what penicillin does. It has a biologic effect of being an antibiotic, killing bacteria in your body. Now that biologic effect of penicillin is dependent on you taking the full course. Now, if I had to give the entire planet a single dose of penicillin, it would not have that biologic effect of being an antibiotic. It's just a single dose. However, there's a group of people on this planet that are allergic to penicillin. And if I restrict treatment of that allergic reaction that I've triggered, I'll get mortality and morbidity from penicillin, even in a single dose. So that's what I was seeing. I was seeing the allergenicity, and I was seeing the mortality and morbidity from that allergenicity, but I needed to understand the full effect because uh, simply with the vaccines, they get your body to produce spike protein mm. and that would be a full dose. And so I needed to understand what spike protein was doing in the body so that I could understand where, we, where we'd go from here. Now, looking at spike protein, spike protein is a very contrived toxin. Uh, we know it's toxic to the human body. It's a pathogen. It causes allergen, uh, allergy as a start. Allergy is always what would show up first. Uh, with anything, allergy is the first to show up. Those that are not allergic will be prone to the other biologic effects of this. So if you're not allergic to penicillin, you can use it as an antibiotic. So uh, I needed to understand exactly what was happening with long-term exposure to spike protein or what spike protein structure uh, would, uh, what the propensity for injury would be from its structure itself. Now, from looking at the structure of spike protein, we're well aware that it causes endothelial inflammation, which is inflammation of the lining of your vessels. Uh, we know that it causes myocarditis. We've seen that in young kids being vaccinated, and we've seen that in some cases of COVID illness. Uh, those two uh, effects of spike protein uh, will cause uh, thrombosis, clotting. Uh, that side effect or that effect of spike protein would cause people with predisposed vessel injuries, like your diabetics and hypertensives and those with high cholesterol values, to be more prone to being injured by the spike protein. And so I was expecting to see more heart attacks, more strokes, more DVTs, more pulmonary emboli in that subset of patients. I was also expecting to see myocarditis, but myocarditis across the entire range of age group. Then it was discovered that spike protein also has certain uh, parts of it that have great similarity to other pathogenic proteins. Now, when you look at those pathogenic proteins and the similarities, 
spike protein has uh, a lot of similarity to pathogenic HIV-related proteins. And those HIV-related proteins are what cause the immunosuppression related to HIV illness and the AIDS syndrome that we see. Uh, so I was expecting that spike protein would cause immunosuppression. And this kind of immunosuppression would cause a reemergence of latent infections. Uh, it would cause a reemergence of certain uh, cancers that were in remission. And so I was expecting those to occur with long-term exposure. Then we found that uh, spike protein had similarity to other pathogenic proteins called prions. Now, prions are proteins that have been in implicated uh, in Alzheimer's and dementia and certain neurologic illnesses. Uh, those kind of illnesses are related to, are called prion disease. And seeing that we were dealing with a protein that uh, had uh, affinity or similarity to those kind of prions, I was expecting to see neuropathies, neurologic manifestations of exposure to spike, and of course, uh, worsening in those patients who had dementia and Alzheimer's when they're exposed to spike. Then uh, spike protein is also a membrane-based protein. It's incorporated into the viral surface. And so I expected that spike protein, if made in your body, would uh, be incorporated into the membranes of your cells, dependent on which cell was making spike protein. That incorporation into the membrane would cause your immune system to recognize the spike protein as foreign. And so it would trigger a host of autoimmune responses, depending on the tissue that was expressing the spike protein. So this is the entire ambit of what I expected spike protein to actually do. Now, from examining long COVID cases, we see that those are exactly the systems that are influenced along the way. Yes, we do see some kidney affectation and other symptoms uh, during a long COVID illness, but I think those can be explained by the microvascular coagulation and injury that cause that collateral damage. But a lot of it is related to exactly what we expect from spike protein. We've also seen that there's a great similarity in those symptoms seen in long COVID with the reports that we're now getting through the VERS system on the types of injuries that are being presented uh, through vaccinations. As much as we cannot uh, comment on the count of those injuries, but the pathologic spread of those injuries matches exactly what we would have expected from a pathologic protein like spike. So spike protein, I think, should form the center of what we look at. Uh, I've termed it spike protein illness so that we draw attention to what's going on. Spike protein illness is what occurs on the eighth day. It also occurs post-vaccination. It's also what's keeping long COVID uh, going. And so I think by definition, we need to understand the short and long end of spike protein illness. And that's what's going to give us insight into where we're going from here. And so spike protein is a very, very important protein. I think with all the conspiracy theories going on around the world, I think we need to understand that we are dealing with uh, something very toxic. Uh, nature could never conspire to put together such an array of pathogenic proteins into a single protein and stick it onto the spike of a virus and make it infect human beings. 
So I'm of the opinion that this is an engineered protein, uh, a lab engineered protein. Uh, that's the only thing that makes sense because I can't see how mutation over centuries would have produced this and it would have gone unnoticed and suddenly appeared with no ancestry to it. Uh, we would have plotted a course uh, along, along a timeline. So spike protein is definitely engineered. That uh, throws a lot of light into what is actually happening around us. If this is a toxin, then it's one of the most elaborate, well-engineered, well-thought-of toxins ever produced by man. And our understanding of it will keep us safe. So going back to, you, you've made an observation where you have compared the reactions after the vaccine to this eighth day observation. Could you talk about that? Yes, uh, I am now in South Africa starting to see uh, vaccine side effects, breakthrough infections, uh, all that kind of thing. Uh, so I need to, uh, very early on, I, I needed to make sure I understood the vaccination status of my patients. And so that I could make sense of what was going on with this, with this vaccine itself. And what I found early on, I was getting a subset of patients uh, seven to 10 days after vaccination with the mRNA vaccines that were starting with symptoms and were testing positive for COVID. And there seemed to be a large subset of these patients presenting to me seven to 10 days after their vaccinations. Now that would, that's, that's uh, very unusual, but too many to be coincidental. So I started looking at that subset. It had occurred at a time where the Delta variant was prevalent. And of course, uh, around the world, people were terrified of the Delta variant, seeing that people were crashing into hospital very early on. Uh, I had uh, friends in India use my protocol and I've kept in close contact with them. And they had the same happen when they had the Delta variant there. They found that by the third or fourth day, there was a small percentage of people desaturating and ending up on a ventilator. But that never occurred here in, in, in my modality and in looking at my patients. It always occurred after the eighth day. So I looked at that and I thought, why would someone suddenly desaturate on the fourth day? And uh, so I advised them to please make note of the vaccination status of these patients so that we could understand whether the vaccine was playing a role in this, not just uh, blame it on Delta variant. Because I was expecting as this pandemic evolved, we would get more contagious variants, but less infectious variants. And so it will fizzle out into an uh, endemic form of the virus. And that's usually what happens. So when uh, we started seeing cases in South Africa, I decided to uh, take the opportunity to understand why patients were deteriorating so suddenly earlier on, prior to that eighth day. Now, I was of the opinion in those subset of patients that we were not dealing with COVID. What was happening here, and this was my theory, was that patients were getting the injection. Uh, they were starting to develop spike protein. Uh, by the seventh to 10th day, the spike protein triggered the allergic reaction. And that presented exactly like COVID illness would on the eighth day. And so these patients that were coming to us were not on their first day of illness. They had avoided the entire viral phase of the illness and were presenting to me directly with spike protein illness. And if I did not treat that spike protein illness timelessly and waited another eight days to see what would happen, those that were severely allergic 
would desaturate within three or four days. So that patient that was landing in hospital, breathless on the fourth day, was not actually on his fourth day. He was actually on his 12th day in the natural progression of illness because he had skipped the viral phase completely. Uh, in this vaccination, the vaccine was the vector. It was not the coronavirus. So the exposures to spike protein was through a vaccination. And so in that subset of patients, I decided that anyone that came to me within seven to 10 days, or even I, I, I marked it up to three weeks uh, post-vaccination with COVID illness, uh, would require the biomarkers to be done. I would usually do biomarkers post eighth day to track the course of the illness and to look at uh, uh, recovery. So patients that came in on the seventh, eighth, tenth day after a vaccine showing signs of COVID, I would draw their blood samples and send it off. And if it was an, a, a reaction to spike protein, I would see elevation in those biomarkers. Uh, unlike we'd see in a viral infection in the first seven days, the biomarkers tend to be relatively reasonable and there's no real spike in them. And so those patients that had elevated biomarkers on the first or second or third day of illness, I knew that was spike protein. And so I deferred directly to treating them as I would a patient on the eighth day. Uh, as well, these patients were making spike protein in their body for the first seven or eight days. And so they had this gradual exposure to spike protein, these vaccinated patients. And so I expected that they would develop immunoglobulin E as well because they had seven days of exposure already to this protein, maybe in minimal doses. Mm -hmm. So I started testing patients uh, that came seven to 10 days after vaccinations for IgE levels. And yes, I had those that were mildly elevated, but I found some very severely elevated levels. Now, IgE is usually below 100. I've had patients come to me on the second day of illness with values of 4,000. I've seen that also in long COVID, Patients with elevated IgE levels in the four and 5,000. And of course, the IgE tended to track the recovery as well. As we got them recovered, the IgE levels started to decrease. Now, in those patients that came to me post-vaccination, a lot of them had reactions and spontaneously recovered with symptomatic treatment. And that's the reason people say that, oh, when you get COVID, it prevents severe illness or death if you're vaccinated but they were that subset of patients who I was concerned would suddenly crash on the fourth or fifth day. And I needed to know who that subset actually were. And I found that uh, an early estimation of IgE in those patients managed to show me the risk. So those patients with markedly elevated IgE levels were more prone to allergy from this and were more likely to have a severe allergic reaction or have this allergic reaction spiral out of control. Mm -hmm. And so I use that as a measure of keeping my eye on those patients post-vaccination that had risk of suddenly deteriorating. And so I found that that proved a very important marker as to the severity of reaction post-vaccination. So yes, we're dealing with spike protein illness. Those patients that presented more than a month after vaccination, I could reasonably assume that they were breakthrough infections. Uh, they had a month to develop immunity. They never had the initial reaction to spike protein. And so any COVID infection that they presented with was a true natural infection that had bypassed their immune response. Uh, so clearly I was seeing that the vaccine wasn't conferring any immunity to those patients. They were still having breakthrough infections. 
strangely enough, I had a lot of patients who took the vaccine and a month or two later presented with COVID, yet for the last year and a half were out and about in public, uh, some isolating, some not. So it seems strange that a month and a half or two after vaccination, you suddenly developed COVID with a milder variant, but you were exposed to all the others and nothing happened. So I've always had it to the back of my mind that this vaccine might be suppressing immunity and making you more prone to picking up the illness. And of course, if you looked at the trends around the world, you would find that there was always a spike in cases following mass vaccination campaigns. And so did that mass vaccination actually do two things? One, triggered a host of spike protein illness that was misdiagnosed as COVID illness. And two, suppressed people's immunities and made them more prone to picking up the virus in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so that created the spikes in cases that we saw post, post mass, mass vaccination campaigns. So I think, uh, look, with those patients that presented with true breakthrough infections, the uh, timeline remained the same. Uh, they had the eight days of viral infection. They did deteriorate on the eighth day. And so uh, the treatment modality remained pretty much the same. Mm. I'm just thinking about this and what that might mean for the boosters that come up with each subsequent sort of booster dose that you get. Is it going to, well, we know that they say that the second dose gives you, uh, you know, you get more of a, uh, you get a bit more sick. Is that going to, yeah. your perspective going to keep going? I think, uh, I think it's uh, the full dose of penicillin. The more you take, the more it'll harm you. And I think that's, that's what's going to happen. Now, if I had to just put into perspective how I see these vaccines working, uh, I haven't yet seen an immunologic benefit from the vaccine itself. Uh, it hasn't stopped infection. It hasn't stopped transmission, quite clearly. Uh, so uh, there is now this uh, uh, advertising to say that it uh, prevents severe illness and death. I think that's uh, ludicrous to, to think that. It's not a vaccine's job to be preventing severe illness and death. Uh, that is the job of uh, therapeutic intervention. And calling it a vaccine when you tout it as a therapy uh, or tout the therapeutic benefit uh, allows you to play in two different games at the same time. You avoid the close scrutiny of therapeutics and, uh, and are able to take advantage of the uh, latitudes of vaccination from a liability perspective and from a research perspective. So therapeutics go through far stricter, stringent measures before they are authorized. Vaccines tend to have a broader latitude to them. So you call yourself a vaccine, but you only have a therapeutic benefit. Mm. And we're looking at therapeutic benefits. My intervention does the same. It prevents severe illness or death. But I do not expose the entire planet to the side effects of my treatment. I, res I restrict it to those that are ill, and I can justify it in those that are ill. Uh, the vaccine claims the same, but we want to give everyone the vaccine uh, for a therapeutic benefit. Uh, I think as well with the vaccine, uh, we need to understand how it gives us that therapeutic benefit. It is not through any immune-mediated resistance to a virus or antibodies generated towards virus. It is more to desensitization to spike protein. Uh, those that are allergic to spike protein, when they are exposed to spike protein through the vaccine itself, will develop a measure of tolerance. And through that measure of tolerance, 
when they get the infection itself and have exposure to spike protein on the eighth day, they won't react that severely because they're partly tolerant. And so it will decrease the severity of illness and mortality. But that tolerance will slowly wane once the exposure to spike protein has passed. And so a booster will become necessary. So the vaccines are not stimulating an appropriate immune response to a virus. They are giving us a measure of tolerance. So what we're actually doing to the population is desensitizing them to an allergen. Now we've done that uh, many times. Uh, it's, it's a common known procedure in uh, medical practice. Those that have severe allergies to certain specific allergens can be desensitized. And so repeated exposure to higher and higher doses would trigger less and less reaction on re-exposure to that allergen. But it uh, makes me wonder why we're trying to desensitize people to this allergen, spike protein. Because the only way to be exposed to spike protein is either through a virus or through a vaccine. Mm. So when you get the first infection with the virus, you're exposed to spike protein. You will develop a natural immunity to the virus, the vector. And so by being immune to the vector, you will never be exposed to spike protein again. And so why do we need to develop tolerance? Why do we need to uh, look at vaccines that use spike protein? Mm. We survive the allergic reaction, we immune to the vector and we'll never be exposed again. This is not an allergen that is naturally occurring in our environment that would cause re-exposure. However, if you've got a family member that's taken the vaccine and he's walking around covered in peanut oil and you're allergic to peanuts, you're gonna keep being exposed to spike protein and we're gonna have problems there. I see there was a question on shedding. Uh, yeah, I've seen that happen. I've had people that uh, took the vaccine and had other family members uh, infected, or let's say have an allergic response to spike protein. I uh, sometimes need to point these things out to change the direction we're going in. I made a comment once that uh, these patients that come on the seven to 10 day post-vaccination, I need a way to test, to see whether they are actually having spike protein illness and not a viral infection. And remember the PCR test is a very insensitive test. And so it would test positive just for spike protein. And so mm -hmm. yeah, these people were showing positive. And so I threatened that I was gonna get myself a set of swabs. And these patients that came in, I was gonna swab them in their nose and their armpit. And if the swab in their armpit turned out positive, it wasn't a viral infection because you don't shed viral particles through your armpit, but you'll shed spike protein through your sweat. And uh, two days later, the FDA decided that uh, the PCR test wasn't the way to go and it shouldn't be done on asymptomatic patients. And so <laughs> I think they realized that uh, we're going to find more than we were, uh, that they intended us to find. Oh my God. So yes, we do shed. Uh, yeah. The problem is whether we shed messenger RNA uh, from the vaccines. Spike protein is a transient protein. And uh, I think we can all stop vaccinating and we won't be exposed to it anymore. And we can deal with the consequences of those that were exposed. However, if you're shedding mRNA, then that's, that makes this a transmittable vaccine. And even those that are unvaccinated are at risk of being vaccinated against our will and against our knowledge. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on like the duration of how long somebody might be able to transmit spike 
after they've been vaccinated? Uh, look, the transmission of spike would be uh, would be determined by other people around you getting unwell. And of course, uh, that only if they're allergic to spike protein. So it's a very difficult thing to gauge. Mm. But I think that spike protein would last in the body for about four to six months after vaccination. Simply, I draw that inference from the fact that your tolerance to spike protein seems to wane by four to six months after vaccination. And if you still had spike protein, you'd maintain a degree of tolerance to severe illness or death. And right. seeing that four to six months after the vaccination, you are again prone to severe illness and death, it tells me that you're no more exposed to spike protein through the vaccine itself. And so I think four to six months would be the time frame to look at exposure to spike protein. That's really interesting, thank you. So. Your thoughts on giving this to children? I actually have strong opinions about giving it to adults in the first place. Children are absolutely nonsensical. I think to put perspective into what this vaccine is actually doing and the public health interventions that we've allowed so far, uh, they are nonsensical. Uh, two things that we, we followed from, from, of course, the people that seem to know what to do. Uh, the first public health measure that was introduced was isolations and lockdowns, track and trace, find the virus, isolate it. Now to do that, uh, we had to lock down societies, we had to isolate people, we had to uh, trace contacts, all that kind of thing. Now, I found that uh, unusual in that in all of human history, we were never able to be, we were never able to control an airborne respiratory virus through isolation, lockdown, tracing measures. It was never possible. But suddenly now we were choosing that as the mainstay of our public health intervention measures. And I knew from the start that was destined to fail. Now to make that effective, your aim was to find the virus, isolate the virus and prevent it spreading. That was the basis of all the measures. The sanitizing, the isolation, the tracking and tracing, everything was meant to find the virus, isolate it before it spreads. Now, to do that, there's two things that you need. You need speed, because it spreads, and you need to catch it before it spreads. And of course, you need good eyesight to find it. Uh, so you can't be searching around in the dark. But we were given a PCR test that was partly blind. It never did what it's supposed to do. So uh, use an analogy where you're trying to isolate two grains of black rice in a bowl of white rice, and it's going to spread. So you need speed and you need uh, the ability to find those two black grains of rice and remove them very quickly. But we were given a faulty PCR test to do that. And so the faulty PCR test is like being partly blind trying to find that rice. You're never going to achieve your goal. And so I think uh, everything conspired to ensure that the public health measures failed. Uh, the vaccination program was the second means to get us to uh, back to supposedly normal. And of course, uh, in all of human history, we have never been able to, pro to, uh, to make a, a vaccine against an mRNA virus. We tried this every year with the flu viruses, and we've never had great efficacy in doing that. This is a, an RNA virus that is highly mutagenic, even more mutagenic than the other commonly known RNA viruses. So we were destined to be chasing our tails. Uh, by the time we got an effective vaccine against one variant, 
the variant would change. And by the time we understood the change and manufactured a new vaccine against that variant, it would have changed again. And that's what we've seen for decades now with the flu vaccinations. We use the common strain in the Northern Hemisphere to create a vaccine and vaccinate the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, uh, hopefully, they would get the same strain. And then we use the commonest strain in the Southern Hemisphere during flu season to make a vaccine for the Northern Hemisphere. And so we've had about 20 or 30% success. So the vaccinations were destined to fail. I was, uh, I was mortified when I heard that they were gonna use vaccinations to try and achieve herd immunity. Uh, the maths could never add up. Uh, you need a vaccine that is close to 100% effective to get to herd immunity. Just to put context to that, if you had a 100% effective vaccine and you vaccinated 70% of your population, you'd have 70% herd immunity. If you had a 50% effective vaccine and you vaccinated 100% of your population, you'd have 50% herd immunity. Mm. That's all you could get to. Now the vaccine that's only 20 or 30% effective, we should have ab abandoned herd immunity a long time ago. But I think the narrative around herd immunity was simply to encourage everyone to take the vaccine. Yes. We need everyone to take it. But when we realized that it wasn't as effective as initially thought to be, that plan should have been ab abandoned from the start. As soon as we realized the lack of efficacy, herd immunity became a non-starter. And so I think that the vaccination program was destined to fail. And it's strange that we have all these different means at our disposal to manage a pandemic, but we chose the two that were destined to fail and we suppressed the rest that might have worked. Yeah, that's pretty, um, pretty, pretty telling. Thank you so much for all of this. Everybody in the comments is finding it totally fascinating. Um, well, lastly, before we go, have you, has anybody in the world, in terms of governments or um, authorities around the world, been able to take your advice? Have you been able to give guidance? Uh, Alia, I think, uh, look, there's a lot of controversy surrounding what I do. Uh, it started when I attempted to publish my article. It was never meant for publication. I always wanted to share it with doctors and educate public. I didn't see the reason to ask permission to save lives. And so the governing bodies really didn't play a part in my work itself. And I, I passed it on to a peer, a colleague of mine uh, that I've grown up with, a cardiologist that was at the time working in Italy and asked for his opinion uh, before I even considered public, pub, uh, publishing this article. And he asked me, he said, look, I'm, I'm amazed at what you found, but there's two lines in this article I'd like you to remove. And I said, which two lines? And he said, the one that says uh, that if uh, early treatment could negate all the mortality and morbidity in this pandemic, it would make the need for mass vaccination wholly unnecessary. So please remove that. And I said, no, I'm not. We need the full perspective. And uh, when my article was published, uh, it became the most controversial article published in that particular uh, journal, simply because of those two lines. And I couldn't understand why bringing perspective would cause such controversy. After all, the patient in front of me is a representation of humanity, and I'll do everything to save his life. I don't care what the global bodies are doing. If it's not uh, influencing the way I treat the patient in front of me, it makes no difference. And so my aim from that point on was to educate doctors and to educate the population. I needed to take away the fear uh, and I think that the education takes away that fear, the understanding that uh, this is treatable. And so I, I went down that road. 
working with doctor associations around the globe, training doctors in different parts of the world, uh, educating public town hall meetings, uh, those kind of things. And uh, I think that's where the work started. Yes, I've been approached by a myriad of different uh, political figures, legal figures around the world. But of course, uh, they have their respective groups to deal with. And so we have uh, agendas that are that are almost set in stone. Uh, I'm not here to enlighten ignorance. And the ignorance, especially if it's an agendered ignorance, will never change. Mm. And so uh, I need to change where I can change. And I think that's with doctors and with patients. I think with uh, doctors as well, a lot of them are bound by hospital protocols. And so that, is, uh, that has made it difficult to actually have this outpatient kind of protocol follow on with hospital treatment. I've been pushed into a situation where I'm forced to do uh, ICU treatment on an outpatient basis because patients refuse, no matter how critically ill they are, to be hospitalized. And uh, thank God I've, I've, I've actually had uh, the success I've had. Mm -hmm. But I would have liked to have the uh, peers around me being able to provide the support I require from the uh, hospitalization and tertiary setups. We could have understood this illness a lot more quickly. Uh, in the first and second wave, there wasn't a single facility around me willing to do an, an X-ray on an outpatient or willing to do a blood test on an outpatient. You needed to have them hospitalized and they refused to go to hospital. So the first and second wave and a lot of the uh, work that I've done had to be done with clinical observation making sure that patients recovered and that recovery would determine how I treated them. It was only now in the third wave that uh, labs and uh, facilities for investigation opened up and I started to recognize the trends in biomarkers and the trends in x-rays and all the others that uh, all the other information that we needed to understand more clearly what's going on. So yes, I've had uh, here in South Africa, I've had quite a few MPs contact me we have a movement set up to push back. Uh, I have a lot of legal experts around the world in contact with me. Uh, I, had, uh, I had an interview with uh, Craig Kelly in Australia. Uh, I've had quite a few people around the globe interested in this, but I think there's a bigger agenda and all of us are facing uh, a lot of difficulty there. If I had to look at how we're gonna turn the ship around, it's for every individual to be educated about what's going on. And until, we stop poisoning the planet. We ain't going to turn this around. And I think it's for people to understand that spike protein is toxic. We have a myriad of different ways to vaccinate. Why did we choose the most deadly? We have live attenuated vaccines that could do the trick. They are the traditional way of making vaccines. And why haven't we done that? There's a lot of nonsense that we see. I asked this to a researcher just the other day. I said, we developed a vaccine with messenger RNA. And if you look at what this vaccine is meant to do, the messenger RNA must get into your cells. It must get those cells to make spike protein. That spike protein must trigger an immune response in your body. That immune response must make antibodies. And those antibodies, if neutralizing, would hold you in good stead when you're exposed, exposed to the virus. Now, the messenger RNA is new technology. We don't know about its distribution. We don't know about its, uh, how long it will live in your body. We don't know how much of spike protein it's going to make. It's, a lot of it will be dependent on the individual itself. And so we have all these variables. I asked a simple question. Why didn't we inject people with spike protein? Mm. It would have triggered the same response. 
you would have got antibodies to spike protein and those antibodies if neutralizing would have prevented you getting corona why was it so contrived with messenger rna maybe the messenger rna has a part to play in all this and so we got to be very cautious uh, the science can be mind-boggling and it can be confusing and i think we need to be we need to dumb it down and see the logic in things uh, the prevention of severe illness and death which the vaccines claim is an individual benefit if it prevented infection and prevented transmission it would have a group benefit and so you taking the vaccine would benefit me but it clearly doesn't have that the prevention of severe illness and death is an individual benefit if you take the vaccine you might not get severely ill or die that has no benefit to me so it does not confer group benefit and if it does not confer a group benefit mass vaccination mandates make absolutely no sense and so until they prove to us a group benefit to the vaccine we've been coerced into taking it yes here in new zealand we're in this funny space where i'm sure it's that way over there where you are too where they will admit that it doesn't impact on transmission and infection but at the same time they will all also ask you to take it for your whanau or your community or you know the vulnerable people yeah. around you like they're asking you to hold these two beliefs at the same time even though they're yes. wildly opposing i think the uh, i think the illogic we're all aware of the illogic we're all aware of the censorship uh, the lack of information uh, uh, the the collusion the coercion I think it makes uh, the way to make it make sense is to understand the bigger picture. Uh, why would they want the entire planet to be exposed to a toxin? We know the vaccines don't work, but you still should take it. We know that it has group benefit, but for the benefit of society, you need to take it. Uh, what is in that vaccine that is so important that we actually get the entire planet exposed to it? Uh, if you look at uh, his historically, uh, the divisions in society have allowed people to be governed and ruled. And so those at the top always wish to sow the seeds of division so that they keep us fighting with each other and not watching what they're actually doing. Mm. Now, in over the past few decades, uh, humanity has overcome the boundaries that uh, race, religion, and our physical boundaries have uh, separated us into. So, of course, we need something new to divide us. And vaccination provides the ideal tool, as long as it is marketed with the right narrative. So this is something that doesn't need race or religion to be divisive. It will divide us along family, along family lines. Mm. And so I think uh, people need to wake up, need to understand that this makes no sense at all. The vaccine doesn't give you blue blood. So uh, it makes no sense to be taking it and thinking that you are now in a better place. <laughs> Uh, everyone is at the same risk. I can't understand why, we, why we're trying to be so divisive with this. But of course, there's a bigger plan at play. It's those of us that are unvaccinated, that are lateral thinkers, that will dig deeper and not follow the narrative, are those that pose the greatest risk to people in government. And so we're the ones that need to be ostracized and pushed to the fringes of society. And I think that's the bigger picture here. Yes, it is. And they're, they're trying to, at the moment, um, bring in the vaccine passport kind of system where basically uh, anyone that's not vaccinated is not going to have any fun this summer is basically the, what we've been told. Yeah. But 
We're that quite is well, uh, make our own fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that is that, that is nonsensical as well. What justifies a vaccine passport? Uh, I've been pushing to, if you wish to, issue an immunity passport. Uh, that's what tells you you're safe. And that's mm. what tells the rest of society that you won't get infected. Now, the way to immunity is twofold. Uh, one, through a natural infection or through uh, vaccine-induced immunity. So it would be pretty simple to develop a TOB cell test to look for long-lasting, broad-based natural immunity. And so we would issue an immunity passport to those who have immunity. Whether it was arrived at through natural infection or a vaccine is irrelevant. And that would be the uh, pragmatic way to go through, go through doing this. I think, however, uh, developing a test to show immunity would show up the inefficiencies in the vaccine. Uh, a lot of people that were vaccinated won't qualify for an immunity passport. Mm -hmm. uh, as well with vaccination, there is no guarantee that when you vaccinated, you would develop an appropriate immune response. People that are immunocompromised on chemotherapy and all that kind of thing would not develop a response, but they qualify for a passport even though they're as infectious and transmissible to this virus as the rest of us in society. So I think the passport is just a divisive means uh, to get society to, to that point. Uh, immunity, natural immunity has been proven to be robust, broad, long lasting. People want, want me to ask me, how long do you think the immunity lasts? And I said, well, you only survived two years since you had the infection. So well, people with the Spanish flu have uh, survived a hundred years and still had immunity. So uh, well, let's see how long you live and I'll give you that answer. But uh, <laughs> the, the vaccine is trying to imitate natural immunity. So I can't see how vaccine immunity can be superior to natural immunity. <laughs> yes. If vaccine immunity is trying to imp imitate natural. I mean, an Elvis impersonator or imposter can never be as good as Elvis. And so, yeah, imposter, I think, is the right word when it comes to vaccinations. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a few people asking in the comments, so I'll bring it up. Um, people are asking about Novavax. I think here in New Zealand, we've we've mostly got Pfizer. I think they've they've approved some of the other ones, but they're really not available yet. Um, some people will be holding out for this Novavax. I mean, it's my understanding it's still utilising this spike. So is, uh, what would your thoughts be on that? I would uh, look at uh, two things when it comes to vaccination, and that's if we require to be vaccinated. Uh, the vaccine should be either a heat-killed or live-attenuated whole virus vac uh, vaccine. Uh, those two kinds of uh, vaccines are, have been developed in the past. We have the technology to do that. Uh, they will be safe simply because we don't have the messenger RNA or any other new technologies to deal with. Uh, once we have those kind of vaccines developed, uh, they would be the ideal vaccines that would stimulate a broad, diverse, long-lasting immune response because you'd get uh, antibodies formed to all bits and pieces of the virus itself, right? So any vaccine that uh, uses spike uh, only, I would avoid at all cost. Uh, secondly, we found that the injectable vaccines, which we're using at the moment, uh, trigger a humoral response, but we want mucosal immunity because the first place you fight this virus is in your nose. So I think we need to tend towards the development of nasal vaccines when it comes to respiratory viruses, and they will give us far better protection. But remember, this is if required. Uh, natural immunity is still the best. You get the infection, you get treated, 
you develop robust natural immunity and then you throw away your mask and you go back into natural into society itself at this point in time irrespective of the public health intervention measures the people that have gone through the distress of fighting covid and recovering from it are the safest people on this planet right now and we should not be discriminating against them mm -hmm. so true thank you well, that was an amazing, amazing hour and a half. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I think that this is going to be one of those interviews that gets widely distributed around our country. And um, it's going I'm to be- I'm hopeful. Uh, I think uh, the sharing of such education is vitally important. Uh, it's worth nothing in my hands and I can't do this alone. So if people understand, I'm sure we can put all hands on deck and uh, I think gain our freedom back. We were told that jail is the safest place for us. We all gladly gave up our freedoms for our protection. Today, if we want out, we need to take a vaccine. We were herded like sheep into a kraal, and now the only way out is through the dip. So humanity needs to open its eyes and get out of this dream. And I think uh, people rising up, which I'm seeing around the world, uh, is what's going to change the, the, the narrative. Mm, indeed, and thank you so much, because it's with this kind of education that we are able to um, be boosted in our confidence as to what the choices are that we, we have ahead of us. So thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you everybody for being here tonight. And um, we'll see you at the next, on the next talk. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye.